Alright, hello idiots on parade The Too Ugly for TV podcast Bonus podcast, hello my good friend Barrett Antar Goodwin Hey, how are you sir? I am well, thank you for asking uh, Longtime listeners will recognize you as the musician from New York Who actually, uh, if this is the first time you're listening That little blurb you heard, the intro music Barrett composed and played that That is his composition Do you remember the name of the song? Because I don't Do you know which song you sent me? I do, but I don't remember the name of it uh, because I don't know that I well only because I don't think it had a name yet. Oh, okay. I think it was called uh, G Dobro. That is that. Or yes, that is exactly what it was. The instant you said it, I remembered. So yeah, that is who you are. Um, so this is the third time in three we're, we're uh, three weeks in a row we've had uh, discussions that we are taping, and uh, to anybody that has not listened to the past two. The theme has been uh, personal responsibility and negative thoughts. Uh, what we talked about is that my mind tends to turn toward the negative uh, in situations, and I don't appreciate that. And you and I have talked about this many times in the past, not recorded, but just as friends, um, that I sometimes feel guilty that I'm not having positive thoughts, that I that if I have a negative thought and I go, ah, you know, this sucks, or why doesn't shit work out, and then I feel guilty and go, ah, why can't I think more positive? Life is great. Everything's going to work out. You know, nose to the grindstone, uh, make it work, be positive. Today, earlier today, uh, we are recording on Wednesday, March 4th. I listened to a podcast, an interview, and it was fantastic. Um, a guy named Trevor Moawand. I could be saying it wrong. M O A W A D. Moad. Mm-hmm. Moad, maybe. Uh, he. I don't know exactly what he does. It's he. He works with athletes and sports teams. He wrote a book called "It Takes What It Takes," and what he does with these athletes is. Um, I guess the best way to put it is he w- talks about the power of neutral thinking not positive thinking because he said positive thinking can be false can be fake if you don't really believe it but neutral thinking just basically forgetting what happened before like if you struck out two times at bat and you're going up to the third time at bat negative thinking is man i can't hear shit today and then you create that neutral thinking positive thinking is is reaching for the stars i'm going to hit a home run but neutral thinking is you know don't worry about the last two strikeouts. This is another opportunity. And he talks about athletes like he, he gave specific examples. Um, Russell Wilson, and this pissed me off because it was him beating the Green Bay Packers when he was two for 11, I think they said, or two for nine going into the fourth quarter of a game. And they won in the fourth quarter. And it's the same. He didn't use this example, but the, the fucking Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes. He was just throwing at feet, and the Chiefs were losing in the Super Bowl, and he just kept, and he said, no, you keep going, I'm going to keep throwing. And they won. They beat the Niners in this last Super Bowl. It was, it's just a matter of don't worry about the previous play, worry about the current moment. Not even worry, just be neutral. And he talked about how positive thinking is a good thing, but negative thinking is a worse thing. So if you can't force yourself to be positive, just be neutral. Because if you say, I'm going to have a great day, yeah, maybe, but if you say I'm going to have a shitty day, like the, the way it was described in the podcast is positive thinking is throwing jabs, like, ooh, I'm going to have a great day, little punch, little poke, 
but a negative thought is like a haymaker. It just hits you. So the more negative you are, the worse it is. The more positive is obviously better, but if you can maintain neutrality, it's easier and better than faking positivity. And I'm like, that made me feel so good because I have always felt guilty when I can't fake positivity, but I am, I have his book on reserve at the library and I am interested in reading it. Your thoughts? Huh. Well, I suppose... Hmm. Okay. I, I would say a couple of things. First thing I would say is, I mean, I think that that makes perfect sense. Um, I, I, I really like the idea of being neutral. I, the word, the words that you use, the way I would think about it on a personal level, I suppose, is, I guess like one of the things that I'm, when I think back about my past, one of the things that I think the most is that I didn't get the most out of every opportunity. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't take, I didn't milk every opportunity for what it was worth. Not again, not in an opportunist sense, but just in a, I could have gotten more out of that situation, you know, and I didn't take advantage of it to the most, you know, but I feel like take advantage has negative connotations, but I think you know what I mean. So in that regard, positivity or negativity or neutrality, it sounds like what you're saying, what you're calling neutral is that, is looking at everything as a new opportunity. That's what, am I correct in saying that? That's what I got from the interview is, as I said, he works with uh, athletes and and high caliber ones, and they look at every play as that play. And he coaches them into not looking at, you know, oh, I can't do anything today. I've been missing all my three-pointers. Whatever sport it is, he's like, every play is that play. Every play is an opportunity. And that's what you and I have been talking about is being open to opportunities. So just be open to all opportunities. Don't worry about the failed ones that may have just happened. Even if it was you just missed the last shot, hey, the ball's in your hands. Take another shot. Yeah, I I feel like, yeah, I think for me... The real issue is is really not even negativity or positivity. It's this it's the speed at which negative negativity can spiral out of control. Do you know what I mean? That's really what it is. It's the speed at which like if I'm if I'm on a gig, let's say, or let's say I'm in the studio. No, I'm on a gig, right? And I'm playing I play something shitty, right? Whatever. And then I go, oh fuck. God damn it. And then if that thought grabs hold and runs wild, it just will just mean shitty thing after shitty thing after shitty thing after shitty thing, which just keeps reinforcing the fact that I suck, right, in my head. But Yes, and he talked about that downward spiral too. Yeah. Because so it's that, easier to go negative than it is to go positive. It's, it's much it easier is. to go downhill than it is to go uphill. It's it just is. gravity. It is. But I want to address something that you said. <laughs> because you said you said faking positivity right and i and i thought that was interesting because when i think about my negative spirals versus my positive ones right 
I think more in terms of not faking positivity, but more focusing on the fact that there are positive aspects of something. I don't think of it as faking like I I I did this before and it sucked. You know, I, I struck out twice last time I was here, third time, shit, I guess I'm gonna strike out again, you know? It's more like looking at the positive in the situation, which for me would be Okay, well, I struck out twice, but here's another opportunity to get up at bat. That's positive to me. That's not neutral. Do you know what I mean? But maybe that's just the way I look at it, or maybe I just have low standards. And that, no, I'm kidding. You know what I mean? Well, I, I don't know, but to me, when I think about it, I don't think it is faking it. I think of it as focusing on what is positive. I, I mean that in terms of new opportunities, but I particularly mean that in terms of the past. Like you know, like for me, if I'm if the if I'm anchored to my past, it's hard to hold on to my future. Like you know, if I'm holding on to the past with both hands as hard as I can, then what am I using to reach for my future? You know what I mean? And so, it's more like in most of the negative situations in my life, the ones that cause me some kind of shame or anything like that, whatever lesson I learned in there even if it came at a high price, like the lesson might have been remarkably expensive. But I really learned it, and it was worth the price. Like if I really look back at it and I go, okay, that was a really shitty situation, but here's what I learned, that in and of itself, it might have been an expensive lesson, but it was a lesson that was really important to learn, you know? And That's, that's the joke you, know, you and I make. Uh, we spent... $20,000 to become best friends because we yeah, went to an exactly. expensive college and it was a horrible waste of money except for our friendship. <laughs> you know, it's funny because like when I think back about it, I think the same thing about that too. Like I could have taken advantage of that place a lot more than I did. Oh, absolutely. Like, like, it was only know, a waste of money because we were immature. If we had focused, right. I'm sure we could have gotten a lot out of that school. Right. I mean, and also, I mean, and realistically, it wasn't the right kind of, it wasn't the right school for me in the way that I learn. It was a very good school, and I would never tell people not to go there. You know what I mean? I think it's a remarkably good school. It just wasn't the right place for how I learn. That wasn't the right environment for me to be in. You know, well, at least not at, not at that time. Now I could go back and it'd be nothing. But at the time, I needed a different kind of environment. To people who don't know what we're talking about, and that should be everybody because that's this is such an inside conversation right now. We're talking <laughs> <know>. about the <laughs> we're talking about the Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And when you talk about the way they teach, I agree with you one hundred percent. To me, before I got there, I was thinking, oh, it's a music school. This is going to be great. You can't teach art it's near impossible to teach art what that school did when i attended it and i can't say this is what they do now because i i don't know um they taught technician they they taught precision they didn't they didn't teach flow or art or beauty what they taught was how to do things in a studio what you're going to do like they took the soul out of music in my opinion and I didn't like that at the time. Looking back on it, I get it. You can't teach soul. But that's so I went in with a wrong I don't want the wrong mindset or in, in a the incorrect mindset. And now looking at it, I'm like, oh okay, I could have learned great things about the studio and then just used it as an opportunity to meet other musicians and maybe form a band like the Blake babies did, for one example. 
or other musicians that went for one semester and then took off and did yeah. great things. <clears throat> I mean, even people who stayed, I mean, you know, like there were just more opportunities. Like at the end of the day, it wasn't up to them to make the opportunities because all I did when I when I transferred and went, and went to Rutgers, you know, it was still a music program. And when I transferred and went there, all I did was join the local music community. You know, there were bands in the school and stuff, but there's a huge local music scene, and I just joined that immediately and then started going up to New York all the time and found, just made the opportunities I was looking You know what I mean? Like, again, it's like that personal responsibility thing. I feel like when I was at Berkeley... What I wanted is for them to unlock all the secrets in my soul, and that wasn't their job. And I kind of went into it thinking that that was their job. And it's, but the, at the end of the day, the reality is, is that even though I was a drummer while I was there, I was still studying a little bit of bass, but not really. You know what I mean? Like, but the skills that I learned there are ultimately the skills I use to make a living today. Do you know what I mean? Even though I wasn't studying the bass that way, the way that I learned what was important, what I learned how to do, and all that stuff, that's the stuff I actually use to make a living. Do you know, like, realistically, when I actually think about it, you know, <laughs> you know, my artistic ability is great, but, like, my artistic ability was severely inhibited by my lack of technique. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Like, if that well, makes any use, sense, you know. I use the experience to talk about my dick on stage, so it really right. was a waste of money for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, well, you know, it's funny because I, I had a conversation with someone today, and we came to the conclusion that, like, that if you don't have the right language, it's hard to even process your own emotions, right? Like, you, like... There's things that I might go through emotionally that I cannot explain. I have these horrible feelings, and I can't explain them or whatever. And then I look up something, or you read something, or you listen to some podcast or something, and someone makes some offhanded reference to something, and they give it a name, right? And then all of a sudden, it, it, you go, oh, it has a name. That's me. And then somehow, because you can name it, it somehow becomes this thing that now you can look at objectively and talk about, you know, because you have the language to express it somehow. And I feel like that's remarkably important. I would say that, like, my natural ability was unlocked very quickly by my technique. And I wonder if that's true in other fields. I imagine it is. Do you find that to be true? Like, do you find that, like the more, the better you get at, like, the performance aspect of comedy, the more finely tuned your skills get, the more you can use your whole body and everything to express what it is you're trying to say. Like, am I making sense? You are, and hopefully I'm not taking this too sideways. I'll, I'll just mm -hmm. give you, this is what popped into my head. Yes. I've never been afraid of public speaking, ever. Um... And that is something that a lot of people have to get over. And when you were talking about technique and unlocking potential, what I thought of was, I remember a comedian, his name was Mark Schneider. Um, 
and uh, he was uh, this is when I lived in Milwaukee and he was working the local comedy club there and I was opening or doing a guest set I don't remember what it was but I was just getting started I'd only been doing comedy a couple months so it was probably a guest set maybe I was hosting I don't remember maybe it was three four months maybe six months and uh, when I was when I got off stage or after the show he was like how long have you been doing this and I'm like I don't know three six months he goes dude I would have guessed at least two years maybe more because you were just so comfortable up there and so I the ease with which I was able to stand on stage it, it left a hurdle behind that I didn't have to overcome and it allowed me to unlock my potential faster that's what when you were talking that's what I was thinking is I got to work on my craft much faster than other comedians because a lot of them and, and you see it in comedians that are famous talk about how they'd have to do a shot before going on stage or they just have to get psyched up because public speaking is a real fear and so i was able to and i and i'm still i don't know that i've reached my potential but i'm still a work in progress but i just remembered that and that's that's what i thought of is the ability to work on my technique and, and unlock it faster because i had already I, I had something innate in me that didn't need work. Fear. I didn't fear, so I could work. If that makes sense. Yeah. Is that too sideways to what you were saying, or is that <clears throat> about right? I don't know. No, I mean I, it definitely ties into it, and I think that that I I really like like it's an interesting thing because like what you're able to do is right you're able to bypass something that causes people a lot of anxiety like like they say that ultimately <clears throat> most of the stuff that you want to do in life is actually quite easy like you're really well aware of what it takes to do that stuff it's not actually difficult it seems right what is difficult is becoming the kind of person who can take those actions you know what i mean right like the actions are relatively simple right but the, somehow the training we need to do it is the difficult part right getting on stage and telling jokes it's not actually it's not actually hard right i mean it is but it isn't right the hardest part is getting up the nerve to actually get on the stage or sitting down to write the jokes do you know what i mean like, right the work that's you can the, get on stage work, and do it right you and i have talked about this a million yeah. times uh, our, our, your old roommate, our, our group friend, guy named John. Uh, hey, just John. Am amusing as hell. I won't <laughs> use his last name. I'm not going to shit on him. You, you said he was amusing as hell at a party. He was off stage, super funny. Yeah. But would that have translated? Would he have been? I'm just using it as an example of it. Like, like you said, the effort, putting in the okay. People say I'm amusing. Can I write that amusing down? Can I present it? to an audience where I'm standing right. in front of them and I'm not interacting with them. You know, like It's not a bar funny, it is a on-stage performance funny. That's where the work is. Like you said, it's incredibly easy to get on stage and tell jokes. It's incredibly difficult to tell jokes that are universal and can make an audience laugh. You can get on stage and tell bad jokes all day right. long. You can stand on stage and be nervous all day long, but can you be comfortable and tell good jokes? That's the process yeah. that's the difficult that's what you have and, to overcome yeah i mean and can you even just do the work right like i mean john like if we use you know my god brother is another great example he's remarkably funny he's remarkably funny can i tell the, the listeners the example you're about to tell do you, is it are oh you i use... wasn't even going to tell an example but you're welcome to <laughs> 
So when I was staying at your house uh, one time, he told us about this comedian he had seen, and he had you and I in stitches. He, he right, had watched a right. comedy show, and he was acting it out for saying, and then this comedian did this, and then this comedian did this, and he said this, and you and I were laughing. And then we watched the actual program, yeah. and neither of us laughed. Right. I mean, it just your, your godbrother right. was so in the moment in telling about what he had seen that I found it better than the actual performance right. when I saw the performance right. on TV. Yeah, he's right. It's like a guy who covers a song and you like the cover better than the original. You know, it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, right, but he's remarkably funny. He just never really thought of himself as a comedian, so never really sat down and never did the stuff. But if somebody sat him down and he did the work, he already has the natural ability to be funny. Like, he doesn't have to learn how to be funny. Do you know what I mean? Or even tell a joke. He just needs jokes, you know, basically. You know what I mean? That's all he needs is material. And I feel that way about com- about comedy a lot, you know. And I suppose same thing about music, right? Like if we go back to the old days, there were artists and there were writers, and they weren't the same people. Well, yeah, you had Tin Pan Alley. You had writers that would give right. us, and, and you still have it to this day. Absolutely. I, 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 I read uh, a book um I can't remember what it was called, but they, they, they talked about the the guy that wrote the song Umbrella for Rihanna. They interviewed him, and I don't think there was anger. I think it was more a joke, but she said something about her song, and he's like, bitch, your song, I wrote the fucking thing. I leased it to you. You know, like, you, you know. Because that was her first hit, so he probably got all the royalties off that, and unfortunately what happens with stars, as we know, is they get to a point where it's like... Um, they can automatically demand, uh, like, oh, I'm going to put the word the there, and now I'm a songwriter, so they can get a percentage of the songwriting royalties. When they don't, here, I'll, I'll give you another, I'll give you a big example. We, uh, Kelly Clarkson, I couldn't tell you any, I couldn't tell you which album it was, I couldn't tell you anything about it. All I have is the memory of the interview and what happened. Um, when she became a star uh, of American Idol, she was given a ton of songs and she sang them, and the album was a hit, and then I think. The second album was a hit, and then she said, and maybe it was the third or fourth, I don't know, but she said at some point, and I remember her saying, I I remember the interviews where she's saying, I want to be a songwriter. I want to be taken seriously. I have things inside me that I need to say. And everybody in her management team was saying, or we could just give you the hits like, you know, we'd done in the past. And she said no, and the single came out, the first single, and it did not do well, and it was not a good song, and the critics were saying, these songs are not, you know, toe-tappy, finger-popping songs. These are not, you know, whistle-along-with-songs. And she jumped right back on board and was like, oh, I get it now. Give me all the songs you want. If the songs are good, I'll sing them. And not in a, a bad way. She just sort of had a realization, like, I'm a singer. I'm a good singer. I don't write the best songs. What are you going to do? And she was very nakedly honest about it, where she said... A good song is a good song. There's nothing wrong with it. I she didn't say I tried and failed. She just said I did what I needed to do. You know, I, I got it out of my system. Whatever she said, she got it. She 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 reached out. Didn't work. So there are still songwriters out there. There's still there's still that division. I mean, I think there's. I think that what has happened is we have turned the idea into taking not in all in all art. I mean, it, you know, listen, it, it, half the people 
in Nashville make a living because they write songs, you know what I mean? And they write songs for artists who don't write songs, right? So, and that's same in R&B, that's same in, in most forms of music. There are writers and there are performers, right? And then there are people who do both. I think that, that what has happened over the years is that because of the success of people who could do both, we've we've somehow turned that into an idea in certain forms of music but not all forms you know that that it's better that there's something wrong with taking songs from other people i do find that in in like in the world of like original bands like <clears throat> rock and roll bands and some of the bands like that you know like that i've met over the years more in the rock area and things like that. There's a real, almost like, or there was, I won't say there is, I don't know about now, I don't know what goes on now, but there was, there seemed to be a disdain for doing other people's songs. People wanted it to be about their music and their stuff and their writing. And I get that, you know, I get that. We're, the artist in me wants it to be my project. I have things I want to say, and so I want to say them, and this is how I'm going to do it. So love it or hate it, fuck you i don't care i got something to say you know and then there's a part of me that just loves playing great music you know where i think i would be happy in either situation but i do i i kind of get where she's coming from you know well, like let me ask you a question sense, when you say you, you know love, what i mean you love mm -hmm. playing great music um i i i the answer has to be yes but do you believe there's a difference would you be happier playing as a backup musician for Sting playing great music, or in a uh, this is a stupid question because I or like in a cover band that just makes great money playing weddings, you're playing Sting's music, right? <laughs> like, right, like, playing Sting's like, music, right? <laughs> right, like what I'd rather be in in the in in you know that band, or what I'd rather be in the world's greatest. Sting cover band or tribute band that was actually really killing, right? Same music, same thing. Would I have a? Would I care if the music is the same? You yeah. know? Well, or, or no. Let me let me because that was a stupid question. Let's let's make it a better question. Would you be as satisfied musically if you were a member of Sting's band or just doing your own thing? Like, because there are musicians. I, I I have a friend that's a drummer that's great. I I don't. I'm not trying to speak for him. I don't know if he has anything to say. I don't know if he's just... He seems, from the impression I get and when I talk to him, that he is just happy as a pig and shit to be a great drummer. And that's it. He doesn't really think like, oh, I need to write a song or I need to have my voice out there. He's like, no, no, I, I am a great drummer and I just get hired to do drumming and I make a living off that. Fucking fantastic. How do you feel? You could, could Do you think you could... Do you have too much inside you or do you think that you would be okay with just being a session for hire, a bassist for hire? I think that <clears throat> I think that I spent a decade in New York doing that and it was really fun and I really enjoyed it as much as I talk about it and like, you know. I mean the truth is that I never really wanted to be a sideman in that way. What I really wanted was to be a band member, but I was kind of trained to be a sideman and so I did it and it was cool, and it was fun, and I, I, I really enjoyed myself. It was, played a lot of great music and met friends that I have to this day that are some of the best people I know, right? And that's the truth, right? But I really always wanted to be part of something. And, if, and like, the idea of being a sideman in Sting's band, 
would that be better to me than being in some other thing? I don't know, because what I really would want is to be one of the police. I want to be, I want to, like, I want to be a creative force inside of the band. I don't want to just be a person who can show up and do the job. You know what I mean? I want, yeah. I want my creative voice to be one of the things that helps move the band forward. So you, know? you are more an artist than a music. Like I said, I don't want to speak for my buddy. He's the best fucking drummer in the world, but he, you know, he, that's what he, he's happy. It's, it's the split in art. It's like people look at musicians and I don't want to say he's not an artist. He is, but it's, it's, you know, some people have a burning desire. They have to do something and maybe he just had to drum. And that was, that was, he's, he's achieved his life goal as far as I know. I mean, and that's you know, fucking fantastic. Uh, what's what's interesting, you know, I, I watched a, a Pat Metheny interview today. Um, um, one of my friends, Todd. Well, okay, you know Todd. They don't know Todd, but you know Todd. He sent it to me. Uh, he's a big Pat Metheny fan, and I watched it. And Pat said something interesting about how he was a sideman and doing his thing, and then he decided for like a decade from like 77 to 87 he did no sideman work he only did his own thing he literally turned down every other gig and he said that some of the stuff that i turned down man i don't know what i was thinking like i turned it down and i'm like still like he literally was looking back at it with regret like not regret but like 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 but a little bit like humor and regret you know like i can't believe i turned down some of these opportunities to play with some of these people but the funny thing is that in those 10 years he won like <laughs> 10 grammys and you know what I mean? like you know he put out i don't know if it's in that time 10 year period but over the course of his life he's won like an insane amount of grammys in 11 different categories and become one of the most sought after side men now and, you know, and he said he's back to that place where he's just doing his own thing. And I thought it was interesting because he could have had an amazing career as a sideman. An amazing career as a sideman. And he didn't. He chose not to. He chose to focus on his own vision and his own thing. And it ended up rewarding him significantly. And then he went back to being a sideman and is playing with the best people. You know what I mean? Like, like I, 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 it's like I go back and forth because for me personally, I actually, en I enjoy both sides of it. You know, like when I'm out with Katie and we're doing our thing and we're on the road and we're playing and we're playing and it's great and I love that. Let me interrupt I, you for one second. Katie Henry Band, to the listeners yes. that don't know, Katie, Katie Henry Band Music yeah, is the website? Yeah, yeah katiehenrymusic.com. Katie Henry Music, yeah. I always get it wrong. Yep. Sorry. But, uh, you know, but when I'm out with her, it's like, yeah, we're doing our thing and we're playing the songs and we wrote them and we're playing them and it's great. You know, we know them intimately because we, we wrote them and we've been playing them solidly for quite some time. But when I'm doing a, um, when I get back and I get a call to, to play some gig on a Friday night with some friends somewhere and I go and it's a bunch of cover tunes and a handful of originals, that's really fun too. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that the, the, we tie this back into something that, that people, like, other than us care about. Um, what I realized is that 
once I accepted that there was no, there's nothing wrong with either side of those things, right? Like, I feel like in my life, I'd been taught so many ridiculous things that I believed to be true about what it meant to be a working musician, right? A working musician is a guy who has a whole lot of gigs with a lot of different people and doesn't do anything that isn't music related, right? And I was like, okay, that's fair. But that's not what it means. Like, it means a lot of, it can mean a thousand different things. And once I got rid of the hierarchical thinking that one way of making money in music was better than another way, or one thing made me more a musician than another thing, or, you know, one thing should have more honor in it or whatever than something else. Once I got rid of that kind of thinking, it became a lot easier to to navigate this and actually really enjoy it and have a different time. And it goes back to believing, right? It's like, what do you believe? You know, like, do you believe that because you struck out twice, that means you're a failure? You know, is well, that what that means? You know what I mean? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to argue point with you, but my brain mm -hmm. went a different direction. Sure. I didn't think it was about belief. What I was thinking it was about was ego, where the idea that one is better than the other. Yes. And yes. the thing that I thought of, and <laughs> this is so stupid, and I hope you love it, is Phil Collins and Steve Perry. Phil Collins somehow managed to be Phil Collins and... Phil Collins in Genesis, member of Genesis, at the same time. He'd like, whatever the relationship was there, it was, I'm going to do a Phil Collins thing, now we've got a Genesis thing, now a Phil Collins thing, now a Genesis thing. For the 80s, it was back and forth. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, whatever the egos were, they, they worked it out. Whatever it was, like, you can't go be a lead singer and not be in it, we're going to kick you out of the band. Or Meanwhile, Steve Perry he and journey had the biggest blow up and they never got back together and they got replaced, you know, because he said, I think he said he wanted to do a solo album and that was it. He did one, maybe two, but it was over. Like he wanted to do his own thing and maybe the journey thing and the egos get in the way. You read about these legendary fights between Steve Perry and journey. It, some people are all or nothing. And I think that's all ego driven, whether it was the band saying, fuck you, you can't just go be a singer uh, and then come back to us, whereas with Genesis, it was all right. It's like, yeah, do your Phil Collins thing. Or maybe they were resentful, but were smart enough to say, well, let's let Phil do his thing, but, you know, we got a good thing going, so he'll come back to us and, you know, let it, whatever it is. Do you think it's ego that, that uh, um, you know, allows you to say, wow, both can be equally representative representations of musicians? I mean, yeah, I think it's ego, but I think there's also a sense of, <clears throat> like... The as lack a, of ego, actually, is what I'm saying. It, well, it, the lack of ego allows you to see it. Because as, in, in my world, in comedy, you, you can't... Uh, this is a little different, but I couldn't do cover jokes. You know, I can't stand on stage and say, hey, I'm going to do uh, someone else's act right now, and, you know, it's just a different version of comedy. That's not how it works. Right. right. I mean, I would say that, like, I... Yeah, I suppose, I mean, lots of bands have done it. There are many, many, the Allman Brothers all put out 
solo things and had side projects and did stuff and still did the Allman Brothers. Nobody seemed to care at all. You know what I mean? Like, nobody cared. Greg Allman did his thing and then also had the Allman Brothers. Nobody cared. I mean, there are all kinds of other internal combustions that happened that broke them up. But you know what I mean? They're whole, a lot of alcohol. Well, I mean, yeah, all, all kinds of stuff, you know. But I think that I think that what happened, and I don't know. I mean, whatever. Anybody who listens to this who has a real historical knowledge of this, please correct me. But I feel like there was a there was a point in history in which every record company's goal was to divorce the main, the lead singer from the band in order to control one person so they can oh, fu- fu- funnel the money in and all that yeah. stuff. And so I think tried to do it with the, Belinda Carlisle with the Go Go's. They tried to do yeah. it with Freddie Mercury or Queen. There was always yeah, they, someone I mean, that was saying right. because they they one person is easier to control. And it was the '80s, is what you're talking about. In the '80s, they were always yeah, trying I mean, to right. to pull the singer huge, out. Huge, right? And and I think that what happened is that 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 gave birth to like an era of individual people being artists in a way where there were no. Band, not bands, but it's music stopped being a collaborative thing. It started being a competitive thing, right? Instead of being collaborative, it literally became competitive. And you saw it with things like American Idol and all this other stuff and all this mine, mine, me, me, me. It has to be about me. And if it's not about me, then it's and, and the amount of it, just the, the, the amount of difficulty it takes sometimes to just get a handful of people in a room to make music without having them just be a cockfight, it's just insanity sometimes. And maybe I just hang out with the wrong people, right? Because obviously there's whole worlds of people who do that, right? But Well, no, we are, it brings us back to what we're saying with the... Uh, um, uh, the the girl from American Idol whose name I mentioned five minutes oh, ago Kelly Clarkson have, yeah that I've already forgotten yeah I mean she she went through it it was it, I don't she was like I think she was coming more from a point of of uh, wanting to be an artist but it was there's got to be ego in there me me mine my songs my songs ooh my yeah. songs did not do as well as the hit songs all right yeah I mean yeah and 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 I think that that what I would say like and this is what. I, what I would say that, that would be just a reasonable compromise is just the fact that realizing that songwriting is a craft. There's an art and a craft to music, right? There's an art to music that is that is all the, the touchy-feely stuff, right? And there are people who can, who just with just natural artistic ability, whatever, or just good taste in music, who knows, right? I don't know where it comes from, but you can play G, C, and D, and they can sing a melody, and that shit is catchy. And they can make up some words, and that shit's great, right? That's art. And then there's the part where you get stuck on a song, and you don't know how to finish it. And that's craft. You know what I mean? You, for me, at least, you sit down and focus and write, and, and it takes work and energy. And that's where something like... Okay, knowing harmonic structures. Well, I don't know what chord to go here because I don't hear it, but what would work? You know what I mean? There's an art and a craft to it. And I think that, like, as we really start to accept that, what would have been a reasonable compromise is just to pair her up with great songwriters until she learned how to write better songs, right? How to take the feelings that she had and then put them in a way that was remarkably expressible to the public, right? In that, not expressible, but consumable by the public in that way, right? And 
that would have been a, rem- a very easy compromise. Just let her sit in the room and everybody, not let her, but just invite her to sit in the room with all the great songwriters so she can learn how to be a great songwriter. Right? Like, there, there's a craft to it that, like, you can learn how to craft a great song. I don't know that you can learn how to craft something that people are going to love all around the world or something you know i don't know like maybe there's some magic in there right there's magic in some of these things but maybe she's got the magic in her she just doesn't have the language or the tools necessary to get it out well it's funny because you take that and you jump to uh carrie underwood another american idol winner and I don't know anything about her other than I read an article when she was recording an album. I don't know which one, but it was almost the exact opposite as the Kelly Clarkson where uh, she was in Nashville probably and they were in a songwriting studio session and they, as I remember the article being described, I'm going to make the numbers up, but the, 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 the gist is correct. Say there were five songwriters and she would just go room to room and sit down and listen and play along and say, I really like where this is going, but uh, in my heart, what I'm trying to express is this. And then the songwriters would get back to work. So like yeah. you were just saying, it was very collaborative. Like yeah. she she was in there and then she would go to the, and it's like, okay, you work on this song. I'm going to go next door. And the next set of songwriters was in there and they would say, "There, here's our tune. She's like, wow, this is great. But I... In my, you know, I hear the chorus going here. Like, but it was, it was a, like you said, it was a collaboration. She was yeah. taking the best songwriters and bringing what she wanted to to the table, and it was a back and forth. Yeah, and I, I think that that is. I think for me personally, the hardest part. And it sounds fucked up, right? But the hardest part, or the the biggest relief, I'll say, right? Well, here you go, focus on the positive. The biggest relief in growing up and getting a more mature mindset is no longer being threatened by my friend's talent. You know? If that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like That does. That's a good one. Like, that's the biggest thing that I've learned in kind of, growing the fuck up you know what i mean you know i i I had a funny post the other day about removing my my head from my cranium my my cranium from my rectum right and one of my friends one of my friends had a funny comment he said um he said yeah you should have called me you wouldn't have to do it alone i find that that the easiest way is what happens you remove the cranium and replace it with a foot right and it's funny i thought that was funny because it's true it's like that's kind of all i needed somebody just come with a foot up my ass you know what i mean but there was no nobody came along to do it so i had to do it myself which is that was the hard part right um but but what's funny um so I totally lost my train of thought thinking about stupid Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> it's true. Like I don't know that there's a point to any of this anywhere. Just you know, but but yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um. But yeah, no, but like, no, friends and, and talent. Yeah, like, that's what I can say. And, and really, like, like, again, that's what I, like, and we tie this back in, right? 
I used to watch people who would be really happy for their friends on Facebook and shit like that. And it would be weird. I was like, God, those people are so good at pretending that they're happy for their friends. But what I found is that once I kind of adopted a much more adult mindset, I was actually legitimately happy for it. And that's what I mean about the like positive thinking. That's when I think about it. I don't force myself to think positively about things, but I have started by forcing myself to focus on the more positive aspects of my life, those things tend to magnify. Like they say that what you focus on grows. And I tend to believe that, right? So if I look at all the negative shit that's going on in my life, that shit just starts to be the thing that consumes my life. But if I start to focus on what is positive about my life, and there's crazy amounts of positive things in my life, then that really, that stuff starts to magnify. doesn't mean bad things don't happen. It just means that they happen more infrequently or less frequently, I suppose, is a more concise way of saying that. They happen well, less frequently, th- and I have a better attitude when they do happen. That's what I was just going to say. It might not be that they happen less frequently. It's just that they don't bring you down as far, and they don't keep yeah. you down there as long. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, this is shorter than we usually talk, but I kind of think that bookending it like that would be a pretty good place to finish. Perfect. What do Let's you do think? It. That works right. for me. So, uh, it, you you say your websites because I always get Katie Henry's wrong. I, I get Antar um, Goodwin right because that's easy. Yeah. AntarGoodwin.com. But yeah. I always say Katie Henry Band Music and it's Katie Henry Music. Yeah, KatieHenryMusic.com. You know, and he, uh, as you listen to the outro here, that's the G Dobro song. So yeah, that you're like, to, oh, that's kind of. I need to rewrite the tune. Though. I need I need a new tune. Though. Like you know, the, my that's the problem with not problem, but that's the thing about being a musician is like you. For me, at least, like I I don't outgrow my work because I listen back to it and I still love it. Well, I outgrow the execution, <laughs> you know? Oh, absolutely. My books, I can't look back at anything I've written because I'll want to go in and re-edit it. Like, ooh, yeah. uh, some, some yeah. word choices there. So, yeah, and you just got to live I, with it sometimes. And I, I mean, and I know at the end of the day, other people don't like, people don't listen to the music the same way. Like, I don't listen to other people's music the same way I listen to my own music. And so it's like I can listen to Stevie Wonder well, Steve, whatever. Of course, I listen to Steve. But you know, like I can listen to songs I like indefinitely, no matter how many times I've heard them. Oh well, yeah, I mean, because I just called to say I love you is like the best song ever. Right? Yeah, it doesn't matter. But I, but I right exactly. <laughs> that <song> sucks. <laughs> that song sucks. I can't believe he did that. It was such a bad song. Anyway. Oh, I don't know if it's a bad song. I don't know this dude. I mean, he, I'm sure he wrote a bad song. It's no fucking Sir Duke. That's a good goddamn song. <laughs> But but I wonder if he listens back to it and says that. What if he listens back and goes, I wonder what I was thinking? Or, oh, man, I hit that note. Like, I wonder if he listens back critically and goes, ooh, I can't listen to that record. Like, I hear that from a lot of people. They say they can't listen to their, like, Bonnie Raitt says she hates the sound of her voice. Or hated. I don't know if she still does. But she said she hated the sound of her voice. It's like, that was probably when she sobered up. She She's like, holy shit, I, uh, I shouldn't have sung drunk all those years. <laughs> That's definitely yeah. possible. Anyway. Uh, KatieHenryMusic.com, yeah. AntarGoodwin.com. My website's NathanTimmel.com. It is indeed. And uh, hope you got something out of this conversation, because you guys, yes. Barrett and I, are going to be doing it weekly for a while. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to that. All right. Bye, kids. Yeah. See ya.